This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be able to open the Word of God together today. We're continuing in our series, Summer Playlist, where we're looking at passages of Scripture that are classic and foundational to the Christian life. These are passages that you're going to want to save, come back to, and put on repeat in your life, because these are passages that remind you of the truth of the gospel. They're going to remind you of how good God is. And these are passages that will encourage us to follow God and walk with God with all of our hearts. Today, we're looking at a passage that reminds us that following God is where true life and freedom and joy is found. A common misconception about Christianity and about the Christian life is that obedience to God in the Christian life is a burden. You could think of it like a cage where we're barred in by God's law and where people will often think that we are therefore cut off from joy, cut off from life, cut off from all the things that you would really want to do because you are restrained as a Christian under the word of God. And since some people think about obedience to God as a burden in this way, and we also know that God is a forgiving and gracious God, the question has been given, if God forgives sin, why not just keep sinning? Why not have the best of both worlds? Why not be able to do and experience all the things I want to experience while at the same time knowing that God and I are totally good? Perhaps you've heard this question asked yourself, if God forgives sin, why not keep sinning? Or maybe you've heard someone ask it. For some people, it appears like a plot hole in Christianity, a reason why our motivation is really not there. There's little motivation to follow God because he's forgiving, he's merciful. Why would you then do what God's asking you to do? So it's a plot hole for some. For some, it appears like a loophole, allowing them to live the life they want to live while at the same time being okay with God. It's a freedom to sin. But what we're going to see in Romans 6 today is that when we view obedience as a burden, when we ask the question, should we just keep sinning if God is forgiving? What we're going to see in Romans 6 is that if we ask that question, we're actually missing the whole point of the gospel. Because the gospel is not about freedom to sin without consequence, but the gospel is ultimately freedom from enslavement to sin so that we would experience life with God as we were made to live. And the main idea we're going to see today as we open up to Romans 6 is that in Christ we are freed from sin so that we might know and follow God. The main idea today is that in Christ we are freed from sin so that we might know and follow God. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans 5, which is the passage right before Romans 6, which is our key text today. Romans is likely the most exhaustive explanation in all of Scripture of the gospel. And it was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Rome. And we're going to be mostly in Romans 6, 1 through 11, but it's helpful as we dive into that text to know what is in the surrounding context. And in Romans 5, Paul essentially claims this, that two men, Adam and Christ, represent all of humanity, that all people, all of humanity is either represented by Adam or Christ. Romans 5, 18 to 19 say this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation 
for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The one man whose trespass led to condemnation for all of humanity is Adam. Adam, at the very beginning of the Bible, sins against God and does what he is not supposed to do in eating the fruit that God had prohibited him from eating. And in that story, we see as he and Eve eat of the fruit that sin and death and condemnation comes into the world. Because of Adam's sin and because of our relationship with him in humanity, we are brought into judgment. We are under the judgment of God by nature. However, that's not the end of the story because later in the story, there's going to come a second Adam, a greater Adam, a better Adam, which is Christ. And Christ is the one who Paul is talking about whose one act of righteousness leads to justification, right standing in life for all men. By Christ's obedience, by his perfect life of obedience, by his death in our place, he gives us a right standing before God. So you can think of it this way, that you either stand behind Adam and are unrighteous before God, or you stand behind Christ and have right standing, faultlessness, perfection before God, because Christ is representing you. And it's by faith that we become represented by Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 5, that the life of faith is looking to Christ for our salvation, looking to Christ for our hope, and looking to Christ for our righteousness. Now, right after this, in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul claims that God's good law, his law which is good and right and holy, provoked humanity to sin. We saw it and we responded in sinfulness. But as far as our sin was bad, and as far as our sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. So God's grace meets us in our sin. And Romans 5 tells us that if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, we have right standing before God. We have access to God. We have forgiveness and we are seen as holy, perfect and righteous in his eyes because of the work of his son. And even in our sin, God has grace on grace for us. Now it's in this context that the question emerges just a few verses later. It's the question we asked a moment ago, should we continue to sin then? Romans 6.1 says this, what shall we say then? In response to this, in response to the gospel, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So one might wonder if I can't out grace, if God is gracious, if God is merciful, if he sent Christ to be the savior of the world and he shows me grace in my sin, shouldn't I just continue to sin? This is even somewhat of a stronger objection, not just if God forgives me, can't I do what I want, but isn't God gonna be shown as graceful if I even continue to sin? Why not go headlong into sin and just show how wonderful and how great and powerful God's grace is every time he shows me grace in my sin? Now, obviously something is totally wrong in this reasoning, but the question that we have to ask is what is wrong? Where are we missing? What, what is wrong with this reasoning that I should just continue to send that God would be gracious in me? And it's in verses two to three, Romans six, that Paul gives us an answer. He says, by no means, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Now, if someone were to ask you or me, if someone were to ask us, should I keep sinning if God is gracious? I don't know how many of us would go directly to the issue of baptism, but it's really interesting that that's exactly what Paul does here. He goes and he begins to talk about baptism. In verse three, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So why baptism? One theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, said it this way, that baptism is really about naming. When you were born into this world, you likely received a name. Someone giving you a name and an identity as you enter into the world. And we receive names as we are born. But the same is true when we're born into God's family. The same is true when we come to faith, that we are given a name and an identity. And baptism is about that identity. As we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, when we are buried with Christ in his death and raised with him in his resurrection, it's about being given a new identity, a new community, a new name, a new life. So in baptism, we profess that we are given a new identity, that we are a new person. When we go down under the water, what we're saying is who I once was apart from God and Adam, who I once was is now dead. That is no longer me. I have died with Christ. This is why the apostle Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ, believing that he has died in the death of Christ. But we don't keep someone under the water in baptism. We always bring them back up because the full story is not just that we have died with Christ, that our old self is gone, but then we have now risen to new life with Christ. So we rise up from the water as a declaration that we are now alive with a new name, a new identity and participating in a new way of life, a new humanity in Christ. We stand behind him by faith. We live our life by faith in Christ. And so baptism then is not ultimately about deciding to become a better person, like a 2.0 version of yourself. Baptism is ultimately about being given in a completely new identity and a new name as we are baptized into the name of Christ and into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Another way you could say it then is that baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. And I don't know if you've heard the term union with Christ much before, but if not, it's a great term to learn and apply as you read the scripture. This term union with Christ is one that will help you as you read the Bible. And even as we read this text today in Romans 6, we're going to see it. One theologian, Anthony Hokema, stated it this way. He says, once you've opened your eyes to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. It's often in the scripture, in the New Testament, with words like in Christ or with Christ. And I encourage you to look through Romans 6 as we read to see those words of in Christ. Another theologian said it this way, that uh, this is John Murray. He says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's the central truth of our salvation. All of our salvation, all of what God does for us in his son, Jesus Christ, is made possible because we are joined together in union with Christ. That means there's no blessing of the gospel that God gives us apart from our union with Christ. And this term union means to be joined together with. You could think about an example like the Civil War. And in the Civil War, there's the Union versus the Confederacy. And what the Union is, is a group of states that are joined 
together in a common cause. The United States of America is a union of different states that are joined together. But the best example actually of union, and when we talk about our union with Christ, would be marriage. Because it's actually a picture that scripture uses about our relationship with Christ. That there is the human marriage where two become one, but there is the divine and ultimate and greater marriage of us in Christ where we become one with him. And what happens in marriage is that all that once was just yours becomes shared. If you get married to someone, your families become one. Your debt becomes joined together. Your wealth is shared. Your life and your experiences, your future is all shared. To be joined together in marriage, for a man and a woman to come together and to say that their lives are now joined together, their futures are joined together, and all that was once mine now becomes ours. So if I were to tell my wife, Hannah, this is my money, don't come on my side of the apartment. Those are my pots and pans. You can't use those to cook. That would not be healthy because it's not understanding what it means to be one. That all that is mine is now yours. We share together in this life. What then is our union with Christ? Union with Christ is everyone who is joined with Christ by faith, sharing in all of his life, receiving the blessing that comes through Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, then what that means is that you share in his sinless life, his perfect righteousness before God. You share in his death for sin because he died to sin, you are dead to sin. You have been crucified with Christ. You share in his resurrection, you share in a new life with him, and you will share with him forever in his glory when he returns. This is what it means to be in union with Christ, to share in his life. And even today we share in union with Christ through the spirit in a living union with him, participating in the blessings and the benefits of his work of salvation. And the reason for our salvation then is if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, is what Christ brings to that union, what he brings to that marriage. And so if you don't know Christ, I want you to know that today, because of what Christ has to offer you, you can be saved. If you come to him with your sin, he will give you his grace and mercy, his death to sin. He will give you life and he will accept you if you come to him. So the question then is how does our union with Christ answer this question? Are we to continue in sin if God is gracious? How does our union with Christ answer that question? If we've been baptized and named and identified in this living relationship with Christ, how does that answer the question, should we continue to sin if God is gracious and his grace would be shown as wonderful in us? In this text, what we see is that continuing in sin after coming to know Christ would be absurd for two reasons. And the first is this, that through our union with Christ, we died to the power of sin. Be absurd because through union with Christ, we died to the power of sin. And the second reason is this, it'd be absurd to continue in sin after coming to know Christ because through our union with Christ, we are alive to God. So first, to continue in sin after coming to know Christ, after being baptized, being joined together with him would be absurd because through Christ, we died to the power of sin. Look again at Paul's response in Romans 6, 2 to 3 about the question if we should continue to sin that God's grace would abound. He says this, 
By no means. How we, can we who died to sin still live in it? Now notice in this next verse, the union with Christ language. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is shocked at the idea of someone who is joined with Christ in his death to sin. Paul is shocked at the idea of someone joining in that death and then desiring to still live a life of sin. He's saying, don't you know what it means to be dead to sin in Christ? Because sin is not merely a decision that we make. It's not merely an option, but sin is more than that. It's a reigning power. It's a destructive master in your life if you have not come to know Christ. But what he's saying here is that in Christ, you no longer belong to that enslaving master. Verses six to seven, Paul states this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. My senior year of football, I was playing football and I made a mistake in practice and ended up with a pretty bad injury that ended my season. But the team was gracious to me and they loved me well. And so I continued to stay with them at practices, travel with them, and they saved me a seat on the bus. But the picture here is different. When we die with Christ to sin, we no longer have any place, any belonging on the team of sin. We no longer have any obligation to live the life of sin. The picture we're given here is that we have died to sin. It's no longer who we are. We no longer have no obligation. We no longer have any obligation to show up, to participate, to be a part of that way of life because God has now made it so that that is no longer our identity. We're not just part of the team unable to participate. We are no longer on the team. There is no seat on the bus for us when it comes to sin, which means that we are not required in Christ to belong to sin. Though in Christ, we will still struggle as we walk out the new life and identity we are given. But this is good news for us because sin is ultimately enslavement. It's ultimately enslavement. Enslavement. In verse 6, Paul says that we were crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you think about a prisoner of war being freed from their prison, if they were freed and then released into society, they would be living a much better life than they were living in the prison. But what if a prisoner of war, after being freed, asked the question, but can I still eat the stale bread that I would eat in prison? You would think, that's an odd question. Don't you know what it's like to eat a fresh meal or a fresh loaf of bread? Why would you want to go back to what you were once in? Why would you want to go back to that lifestyle? Or if they were to ask, can I still wear the old tattered clothes that I used to wear when I was a prisoner? You might ask, well, why would you want to? Don't you know what it's like to have a nice warm jacket? Don't you know what it's like to have good clothing? Or if they were to ask, can I still sleep on the floor? You might think, why would you want to? Have you ever slept in a good bed? Why would you want to go back to that way of life. But the point is this, that we actually often think of sin as freedom in life, when all along it's actually enslavement. And one of the greatest lies of our enemy 
that exists in our world, in our lives, in our culture, and in our hearts often, is that sin satisfies, that it's better, that it's freedom. But the reality of the Christian life is that we are given freedom from enslavement to sin and that God's law is actually better. But this same idea that sin is an enslavement is the same one we mentioned earlier, the idea of being barred in by God's law. It's a lie that comes up often and it's actually the very same lie that occurs at the very beginning of scripture in the garden. In the garden, the serpent, which is the devil, tempting Eve, to eat the forbidden fruit says this, Genesis 3, 5, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about that lie for a moment. When you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Do you see how God is holding out on you? Do you see how he's restraining you? Do you see how he's keeping you from your true potential? This is the lie of sin, that it is satisfaction in life, but we know that the result of our sin was actually death and enslavement. But as long as we believe God is holding out on us, the appeal of sin will make sense and we will see obedience to God as a burden. One of my mentors, Brian Hanneman, has said it this way. He says, I've never obeyed God's word and then regretted it. So I've never obeyed God's word and then regretted it. Never been in a situation where I did the right thing and thought, oh man, why did I do that? Why was I kind to that person? Why did I love that person? Why did I respect my parents? But he said on the contrary, I have disobeyed God's word and then regretted it. I've disobeyed God's word and regretted it. The truth is we will regret our sin at some point. Even if there's this temporary satisfaction, ultimately it will not satisfy. Lying will only put us in a hole. Snapping at our mom or being mean to someone is not going to pay out well. When we compare ourselves to others and then gossip to make ourselves feel better, we're not winning out in that situation. When we overeat or binge on whatever it might be, we're not getting the better end of that deal. We are missing out. And when we revert back to our old ways, the old identity, in Adam, the old ways before we knew Christ, we're actually missing out on the goodness of knowing and experiencing life in Christ. And we're missing out on experiencing what God has sent Christ to free us from, which is enslavement to sin. So to continue in sin after coming to know Christ is absurd because through our union with Christ, we died to the power of sin. And second, it's absurd because through our union with Christ, we are alive to God. Verses four to five say this, we were buried therefore with them by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul states that if we have died with Christ, we will also be raised with him. That if we share in the life of Christ, we share in all of it. We get all of who Jesus is. We have died with him, but now we raise to a newness of life. And verse four talks about us through the resurrection, walking in the newness of life. This is what we were made to experience. This is what we were made to know. And after talking about how Christ defeated death by dying to sin, Paul tells us in verse 11, So you also 
because of the work of Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ brings us freedom from sin, but the final purpose, the final reason we are united with Christ is so that we would also experience life with God, that we would walk with God, that we would follow him, that we would know and follow him as our God. The Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope is a telescope that was put into space for the purpose of getting rid of atmospheric blurring. And atmospheric blurring is essentially this. It's the blurring that occurs as we look up at the stars and the galaxies and the heavens, everything beyond us. Because as we look through our atmosphere, through the sky, through the air, it gets blurred and the images get blurred. But when we put a telescope into space, that blurring goes away and we're able to get clearer, better pictures of the stars, the heavens, all the things that are beyond us, galaxies and worlds once unknown. Now, if you were to ask me, Mark, why did we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space? Imagine if I were to tell you, we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space so that the Hubble Space Telescope would be in space. It's kind of an answer, but it's not a great answer because it isn't very helpful. So you ask me again, Mark, why did we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space? I say, we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space so that it would be in space. Again, you might think that's not a very helpful answer. Why, but why did we put it there? Why is it there in space? Say so we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space so that it would be in space. It's kind of an answer, but a better answer would be this. We put the Hubble Space Telescope into space so that every barrier between us and seeing the glory of the heavens, the skies, galaxies, stars, and worlds once unknown would be removed. No barrier would exist between us and that glory, us and that image, being able to see and delight and know and experience things that were once off limits to us. So the same question then, why were we given union with Christ? Why were we put into Christ? We were put into Christ so that we might experience the forgiveness of sins. Absolutely and amen. We were put into Christ so that we might die to sin. Absolutely and amen. But ultimately, we were put into Christ so that we might live to God. So that every conceivable barrier between us and knowing and experiencing the glory and the goodness of God would be so completely removed that we would experience worlds once unknown as we walk with and experience life with God. John Piper said it this way. He said, the supreme demonstration of God's love was the sending of his son to die for our sins and to rise again so that sinners might have the right to approach God and might have the pleasure of his presence forevermore. That we might have the right to approach God and have the pleasure of his presence forevermore. So to ask why not keep sinning is to miss the point of the gospel. God saved us so that we might live. God put us into his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might live. And if we've come to know Christ and we've come to know the new life that's found in him, why would we want anything else? Romans 6, 20 to 21 says this, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I mean, when you were slaves of sin, before you knew God, before you had a relationship with him, you had no obligation to do right. You were free. 
in regard to righteousness. But it goes on and says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. A question that I've had asked to me that's really helpful, two questions, is this. One, what is one thing that your sin has done for you? What is one thing that your sin has done for you? The second question is this. What has God done for you? And I think, what has my sin done for me? Maybe momentary pleasure, but ultimately shame, pain, suffering, and isolation. It has never turned out well. But what has God done for you? God has saved me. He has given me everything good I have ever had, and he's shown me is grace. So the question then, back at the beginning, why not keep sinning if God is gracious? There's maybe a few questions we should answer before we answer that question. The first question is this, do you know who you are? I know for many of us, we're struggling with sins, shame, addiction, and issues. What we want to know today is that struggling with those issues, there is still hope. If you're struggling, it's not ultimately just about trying harder in yourself. It's not about becoming a version 2.0 of yourself or 2.1 or 3.0. Ultimately, the Christian life is about relying on the strength of Christ, about being baptized, identified, named in him. It's about having a new source of life in us. And then as Christians, what we do is we battle and we fight to see the truth of who God says we are in Christ, holy, righteous, blameless, pure. We see the truth of God flow into every area of our lives. We seek his help as we seek to live out our true identity in Christ, as we seek to live out our new name in Christ. So you know who you are. In our struggle and our pain, God is gracious and merciful. And the Christian battle is to live out the truth of who God has made us. Do you know who you were? That you were a slave to sin. Why would we want to go back to that? There is no pleasure that is ultimately found in that. But God sent his son Christ so that we might know a new way of life in him. A lie that you may be tempted to believe as a Christian struggling with sin is that this is just who I am. But according to this text, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, that your struggles, your trials are not who you are. You have been given a new name and we now live in accordance with that new name and that new identity. So do you know the goodness of God? Do you know that sin is always missing out on better things, what God has for us? And there's nothing more powerful perhaps to fight sin One of the most powerful ways we can fight sin is simply to do this, to reflect on the goodness of God over sin. To think of how good and gracious and merciful and kind God is to us and know how much better that is than sin. Psalm 63.3 says this, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. God's love is better than life. In love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to us, to die for our sins. And our purpose, our goal in Christ is to know and live in and experience the steadfast love of God, which is better than anything in our success and in our failure. When things don't go the way we expected them to go in our romance, a career, family, whatever it might be, when things don't go the way, even then God's steadfast love is worth it and better. So God sent his son Christ into the world so that we might know his goodness. God sent his son Christ in the world so that we would know worlds once unknown. 
that we would experience his glory, his goodness, that we would know what we could never know apart from God, that we would experience his grace, his mercy, and his kindness, and that we would live in truth, alive with God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace and kindness in sending your son Christ into the world. I pray that we would look to him, we would find our identity and our name and our purpose in him. Lord, I pray that we would go to him for any who do not yet know Christ, that they would go to Christ and for those who are in Christ, that they would live truly as you've made us to be in Christ. You would encourage us in our struggles and our pains and our suffering to continue to persevere, to look to you and to live in the joy of who you've made us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.